Well, comrades and friends, I'd like to start off by confirming that Nicky Wilson was a lot more athletic looking the last time, the last time we met. I haven't got time to deal with the problems surrounding the minor strike in its entirety. And so what I'm going to try and do is deal with three issues that I think are, are very important. And I'm pretty sure that Ian and Nicky have been having a sneak look at my notes uh, when they were talking. Because, you know, so many people so flippantly said that it was trade union barons. And there's one guy, I think he does the Politics on Sunday program. Can't remember his name. He's very fond of talking about trade union barons. When the coal board announced the closure of Cottonwood Colliery in Yorkshire and Paul Mice Colliery in Scotland, I was pretty certain that the National Union of Mine Workers would be on strike. And the reason why I was certain of this is because this is what we have been preparing ourselves for since 1980. You know, if you look at some of the incidents that happened in the mining industry uh, prior to 1984-85 strike, in 1981, the government announced the closure of, or the Colbert announced with the government support, the closure of uneconomic pits in South Wales and other parts of the coalfield. Immediately, immediately the South Wales area came out on strike in protest against this in 1981. We were immediately joined by Scotland, Durham and Kent. The Yorkshire area had a mandate to join the strike the following week. The day after that announcement was made by the Corbord, and that announcement was made on the 18th, uh, sorry, the 17th of February 1981. The following day, a decision was made by the cabinet, by Thatcher's cabinet, to withdraw the colliery closures. Thatcher did what was then looked upon as her famous or infamous U-turn. Now I said at a later date in answer to a question that in rugby terms, at that time, we were fed a dummy. It was just a quick swerve. A quick swerve on the part of the Thatcher government because they hadn't prepared themselves sufficiently to be ready for a dispute in the mining industry. They hadn't pursued the Ridley plan far enough. They hadn't signed up enough haulage contractors who were prepared to run picket lines. They hadn't sufficiently organized the police as a national police force sufficiently at that time. And so they did this, this U-turn in, in 1981. Well, of course, by March 1983, and the records are all there for you to look at, there had been three national ballots in the National Union of Mine Workers on the question of pit closures. All three of those national ballots between 1981 and 1983 had resulted in the rejection in a ballot of taking strike action over pit closures. 
In South Wales, at all three of those ballots, the South Wales area voted in favour of taking tricaction. And it was for that reason that I was confident in March 1984 that the call would be answered in the same way as it had been uh, in, uh, in the past. But of course, over the weekends of the 12th of March 1984, mass meetings were held of the lodges in, in South Wales. And much to my surprise, 18 of the lodges in South Wales voted against taking strike action. And 13 of the lodges in South Wales voted in favour of taking strike action. So despite the fact that we'd voted in favour in a national ballot three times in the last couple of years, when it came to the crunch in 1984, the majority of miners in South Wales decided they weren't prepared to take strike action. There are all kinds of reasons for that. And I know that my chairman, my old boss, John Edmonds, wouldn't allow me sufficient time to go into those details. But what I am saying to you is that as Nicky said, as Ian said, if anyone thinks that the miners in South Wales came out on strike because Arthur Scargill in Yorkshire told them to down tools, a farce, a fairy tale, it didn't happen that way. The strike in South Wales took place because the men who had voted in favour of strike action went and picketed and spoke to the men in the pits who had voted against strike action. It wasn't the trade union barons who convinced the miners in South Wales to come out at that time. It was their own coal fish workers, their own rank and file miners who went and spoke to them that caused them to reconvene their meetings and change their decisions. Now that is a fact. That is what happened over that weekend leading up to uh, on, on March the 12th and uh, 13th. And of course, within a week, South Wales area was out on strike totally and played their part in that strike uh, to the full. And again, I wish we had hours or maybe days to bring out the truth in what happened in that year between March 1984 and 85. But one other part that I want to touch on, if I can, is the Royal Courts of Justice. This is an interesting part. It was interesting for me anyway. That early in 1985, the end of January 1985, now we've been on strike for a year, five people who were called working miners in South Wales, um, the terminology of the, the legal people, not me, but they were called working miners. And they began legal action against the National Union of Mine Workers and the NUM in South Wales. And their claim was that the strike was illegal and that the area officials in South Wales, because the strike was illegal, should be held personally liable for all the money that had been spent on the strike. The figure of two and a quarter million pounds was mentioned. And the case was sent to the Royal Court of Justice, just down the road here. A guy by the name of Mr. Justice Scott was appointed to hear the case. And in that court, 
I sat for 10 days. 10 days. Listening to this guy with a red robe and a long white wig. Being asked by other guys with black robes and shorter white wigs. To decide that I, as the Vice President of the South Wales, in South Wales, was to be held legally liable for the expenditure of one third of two and a quarter million pounds. We'd been on strike for 11 months. All the union funds were sequestrated and were under the charge of Pricewaterhouse. In my pocket for the whole of those 10 days was a summons from the local authority for non-payment of my rates. And here I was. It was like sitting in a theater where a play was being acted out in front of you. It was so unreal, so far removed from the real world, that it did convince me at sometimes that I was sitting in a theater listening to a play or watching a play to give up. And Nicky mentioned, and Ian mentioned, and like them, I had never in my life been in a court of law before, other than to accompany my son to a magistrate's court in Swansea because he was on a road traffic uh, charge of speeding. That is the only time in my life I had ever been inside a court of law. But here I was now in here. And you had the lead players in this play that was going on was Mr. Justice Scott and his court officials. The lead barrister for the NUM nationally was John Hendy. The barrister for the South Wales area NUM was a guy by the name of Mr. Anthony Scrivens. The barrister, the lead barrister for the working miners was a man by the name of Louis Bloom Cooper. And each of these lead barristers were accompanied by a junior and by a, uh, by a pupil barrister. Each of the parties involved were accompanied by the solicitors. Ten days in the Royal Court of Justice. And there's no need for me to tell you that judges, barristers, solicitors do not work for minimum wage. <laughs> and neither are they employed on zero-hour contracts. Not only is every hour charged, but every minute of the work that they do for you is, is charged in that way. And so you can imagine, you can imagine the cost of 10 days in the Royal Court of Justice to ask a judge to decide whether I, who couldn't pay my rates to the local authority, was going to be held liable for a third of two and a quarter million pounds. I'm not going to go into detail of the judgment that Mr. Justice Scott made because that is a matter of public record and anybody who's that interested in the full judgment, it's there for them to, to get hold of themselves and see it. But the result was that the case against us, that further injunctions were placed on the union as far as picketing was concerned, where it affected the five working miners who would started the legal action. Further injunctions on the case there. The case against the South Wales area president, the vice president myself, and the general secretary, George Rees, was dismissed. The case against the national union officials, as far as the legality of the strike was concerned, was dismissed. But it was dismissed with costs. So even though we were organizing the strike in accordance with our constitution, in accordance with our rules, we were still paying the costs of the legal hearing of us being accused of, of um, organizing an illegal strike. 
And you know, I want to go back on one thing for a minute. I did touch on it now, earlier on. When people talk to me about a ballot, I am telling you now, and I was as involved in the National Union of Mine Workers and in, involved in lead up to the miners' strike as anyone. We would not have won a ballot in March 1984 for strike action. Had we called a national ballot at that time, the result would have been exactly the same as it had been 12 months before. No one who knew anything about the mining, uh, the NUM, the mining union, or the mining industry in its recent past, no one in their wildest dreams would have said that Nottingham, South Derbyshire, Leicestershire, the white collar section of the NUM, they would not have voted in favor of strike action. It was impossible, absolutely impossible, for the NUM to win a national ballot at that time. But, and I think I was pretty well versed in the constitution of the NUM, our rule book, our constitution was quite clear that the strike could be organized in the way that it was. It could be organized area by area. The national executive and the national president had the right and the rule to confirm that those strikes in those areas were official and therefore the strike was legal within the terms of the National Union of Mine Workers. So no one, no one who knew the mining industry, no one who knew the NUM would have said at that time, in my opinion correctly, that we could have won a national ballot. In 1983, only a year earlier, where South Wales sent pickets right across the coalfield over the closure of Lewis Merthyr Colliery, a national ballot was called. 61% against coming out on strike on the question of pit closures. The same would have happened in 1984, in my opinion. So, that was, uh, that was one thing. But I thought the, the case in the Royal Court of, of Justice was, um, to me, it was something that showed me just how far removed the justice system is from the real life of ordinary working people. Don't, oh, you've had it, John, I can't do it in two minutes. <laughs> and, <laughs> I want to touch. This, is, this reference to me being his boss, you know. <laughs> I just, I, I won't be very long, I promise you, because I want to lead, or I want to talk about the lead up to the end of the strike, which I think is absolutely crucial for anyone who wants to understand uh, the 84-85 strike. Coming up to the, around November 85, because you can go on every day about the things that happened on the picket line about the police, whatever, all that happened, it was a war. The Thatcher government declared war on the National Union of Mine Workers. Declared war on the National Union of was for a few reasons. One, they wanted revenge because of what happened in 1972 and 74, and what happened with the fall of the Heath government, which pushed the Tories out of office and brought a Labour government in. They wanted revenge for that. But more important for Thatcher's ideology than that was the fact that had they not defeated the miners, they could not have pursued their programme of action that they wanted to take against the trade union movement in general. We talked about Hillsborough. We talked about things that happened as an effect of the miners' strike. I'll tell you one thing that's happened. Had the miners not been defeated in 84, 85, 
you would not have hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of mainly young women and men in this country so-called employed on zero-hour contracts. That kind of legislation that has been introduced to try and crush the trade union movement, that could not have happened. They had to defeat the miners before they could do that. They knew that. And the people who opposed us so strongly in 1984-85 knew that also. But coming up to the end of the strike, which was a crucial part, the cracks began in around about November 1984, where people started to drift back to work. People were worried over Christmas. People's houses were being repossessed. Marriages were breaking up. All kinds of pressures uh, were on the families. Pressures that people who weren't involved in that kind of dispute, that kind of war, uh, perhaps uh, wouldn't understand. But it happened in our communities, it happened with our families, it happened with our comrades. And, and, and that was happening. And so in January and February then, more and more people started to drift back to work. By the end of February 1985, we reached a stage, and bear in mind that every day, every day from November to end of February, you had this game being played out on almost every news broadcast that was made of the numbers of miners who had gone back to work that particular day. The coal board and the government would announce how many miners had returned back to, back to work in Yorkshire, in Scotland, in South Wales. The union would come out and say, that's just propaganda, this is not true. But whoever, whoever's figures you believed, there is one thing that could not be, it couldn't be doubted, that by the end of February 1985, almost 50% of the British miners had returned to work. Even in South Wales, by the end of February 1985, there were a thousand miners back in work. <coughs> there were still 21,000 out on strike, mine, but there were a thousand out on work, uh, back, on, back in work. And I've got no doubt in my mind, whatever was said about individuals within the union, I've got no doubt that my comrades in Scotland and in Yorkshire and in the Northeast were doing everything they could, as we were in South Wales, to hang on to that strike and make sure that it remained solid. But we'd reached a stage now where it wasn't just a question of whether we could win the strike or not, because nobody in their right mind at that stage thought we could win the strike. We knew we couldn't win it by that stage. But now it became a question of the very survival of the National Union of Mine Workers. And in South Wales, I got some dates written down here, but John's not giving me time enough to to, to, to go into the, my notes um, properly. And in South Wales, we decided that something had to be done. We were getting phone calls into South Wales from other areas, from union officials asking us to do things, something about it. And so we decided to convene a conference. I'm looking for the date on that. It's not that important. At, uh, it was the 1st of March, St. David's Day, 1985, where we convened a conference where the executive of the South Wales NUM recommended to that conference that we demand the convening of a national conference and that at that conference we would support 
a return to work without a settlement. Not the best thing, not the thing that we wanted, but we reached a stage where, in our opinion, there was no alternative. That conference was convened on the third, Sunday the 3rd of March at the TUC headquarters in London. There was an amendment to the South Wales resolution from Kent calling for the strike to continue. That amendment from the Kent area was defeated by 170 votes to 19. So at the national conference, that is how many people who actually voted for the strike to continue. 19 and 170 delegates on the card vote voted for, to end the strike. There was an amendment from the Yorkshire area and that amendment called for the strike to continue until the 720 miners that were sacked were reinstated. That was the amendment that came in from the Yorkshire area at that conference. That was defeated by 98 votes against to 91 votes for. And then, after the vote was taken, or after those amendments were heard, it fell upon me to do what I still consider, 30 years on, as one of the most difficult tasks that I've ever been asked to do as a union representative. I had to get up out of my seat in that conference, go to the rostrum, and move a resolution on behalf of the South Wales miners, calling for a return to work, an end to the dispute, the dispute that we had started 12 months before, knowing that we were calling for the end of that dispute, having been defeated in the task that we set out to obtain. There are still people, 30 years on, who say that it was a victory. But I'll tell you what, I felt as if I was in a boxing ring being knocked from one bloody rope to the next. By that time, it was not a victory, it was a defeat. And I still believe, 30 years on, that had the South Wales area not taken the action that we did take, then it would have ended in chaos and anarchy, and we ended up fighting ourselves and not fighting the Coldwood and the government. We were fighting the members that had stood shoulder to shoulder with us for 12 months. That was the end of that strike. And that was why South Wales made the decision that it did make. <clears throat> I tell you now, like my comrades here, we had no alternative to embark upon that strike. I know that the fact that we could not have won a ballot for strike action in 1984, I know that the fact that we were in that position was a huge gift to the Thatcher government. I know that. But we had no choice. We had no choice, but after 12 months, unfortunately, it had deteriorated into a situation where I'm telling you, I know, I could quote you hundreds of cases, one quick one, where there was a death in a family in South Wales. The family had no money for the funeral to bury that member, family member who had died. The union had to pay for the funeral. The guy who was in that family came to my office begging, begging us not to turn him into a scab. Because he had given all he had to give. He had no more to give. 
The men who were returning to work in the latter days of that strike, I do not regard them as scabs. They were men who had given the union, given the loyalty, given everything they had to give. They didn't have no more to give. It was either their own personal complete destruction or return to work. That is how serious it was. And I know that it was the same. I know it was the same. Because Easington Colliery, Easington Colliery carried a resolution overwhelmingly in the northeast, calling for a return to work without a settlement as well. And uh, so that was the feeling there. I am sorry, John, to uh, drag on uh, a little bit. But, um, but I hope that I have been able to shed some light on some of the points that were made uh, that were done. I hope that any questions that arise out of anything I've said, I will do my best to, to answer. But believe you me, when you say about the miners' strike and the defeat of the miners, some of my comrades said that it was a watershed in British industrial relations, and it was. It was a watershed in British relations, but it was also a watershed in the way that people are protected at work. What has happened since 1984-85 should never have happened. It should be stopped. And now, I'm retired, I'll be 76 now in, in, in May, and you can believe it or not, but I've got a photo in my house of me and my comrade Neil Kinnock when we both had Beatles-style haircuts. Could you believe that? But it's true, it is true, you know. And, uh, but anyway, what I am saying is, even now, I believe that if ever there was a time when the British trade union movement needed a victory, that time is now. That time is now because when we look around us and we see what is happening to the way the young people are being treated. Thank you very much for listening to me.